Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Stone Pages Archeo News Podcast, episode number 263. I'm your host, Philip Hansen. Now, before we start, I would like to apologize for the long wait between the podcast. Both Diego and I have had some stuff going on, which we needed to take care of before we could do the news, but we're now officially back. Now, before we start, I would like to state two things. One, it is officially summer in Denmark, so if you hear any background bird songs or gardening tools, I'm sorry, and I've tried to edit it out where possible. The second is that, of course, we always collect stories from various places around the web. So, to find the sources for all of today's uh, stories, you can go to news.stonepages.com, where we have the sources for all of the stories, as well as any that we may have missed. So without further ado, let's get to it. Our first story is not a Stonehenge story, but it is a West Kennet Wooden Circle story. Next, we have a continuation on some of the other news about the original occupation with the dating being pushed back a few thousand years. Then we have the Taiwanese version of Kontiki going from Taiwan to Japan, and Neanderthals being found in open-air areas in Israel. Then we have some very sad news as the Klavakarens are desecrated, then we have musical tools with stone tool production being linked to musical ties in the brain. Then we have the Shrewsbury's Church being placed right on top of a prehistoric sacred site. And last but certainly not least, we have the rediscovery of an Iron Age house in Stirling. And now, as promised, the first story of today's podcast is a Stonehenge story, or at least related to it. In this case, the West Kennet Timber Circles are older than previously thought. Now, new dates to the two massive circular wooden enclosures built at West Kennet, which lies close to Avebury in Wiltshire, England, show that they predate the first stones erected at the nearby Stonehenge by about 800 years. Alex Bayliss, who is a statistical archaeologist with Historic England, as well as the study's co-author, says, It's completely unlike anything we've ever found in British prehistory. Now, as I'm sure you all know, the area around Stonehenge is saturated with ancient sites. Bones have been found near Stonehenge, suggesting that the area was a wild orc hunting ground long before the monument itself was built. Now, Avebury has its own Henge monument, which is called Silbury Hill, and is the largest prehistoric artificial chalk mound. Now, there are also the remains of a Neolithic settlement called Durrington Walls, and it shows signs of ancient feastings, and may have been where the builders of Stonehenge lived while working there. Now, the wooden circles at West Kennet were discovered when a pipeline was being laid in the 1960s and 70s. And in the late 80s and the early 90s, Cardiff University archaeologist Alastair Whittle led a small excavation which found the charred remains, and he could deduce that there were two immense circles having been built side by side, with only a small gap between them. One of these circles was a single ring about 250 meters in diameter, and the other a concentric double ring about 200 meters in diameter. The enclosures are believed to have been built by digging ditches and placing oak posts into sockets in the ground, which would have created a huge wooden palisade. The posts were very closely set, and it is believed that around 4,000 trees would have been needed for the entire thing. Whittle's team also carbon dated a shard of pottery found in one of the post holes to around 2500 BCE. Now, due to the improved techniques available to Bayless' team, they could push back the dates for charred remains from post holes, animal bones, and fragments of pottery, and they pushed them back a further 800 years to 3300 BCE, a period for which very uh, little archaeological evidence exists. Now, due to a lack of evidence of human occupation dating to the relevant period, Bayless' team suspect that the tomb closures were used as a gathering place, but not for a very long time. 
And ladies and gentlemen, following that Stonehenge story, let's go to one on Australia. Now, this story is actually kind of an update to some of the stuff we've talked earlier about in some of the other podcasts, namely the Aborigines occupation of Australia, due to the fact that a recent evidence has emerged which pushes back the occupation of Western Australia to more than 50,000 years ago. This research was carried out by the University of Western Australia, where they discovered charcoal, animal remains, and ancient artifacts in the Bodhi Cave on Barrow Island, which is located 60 kilometers off the Pilbara coast and was cut off from the mainland some 7,000 years ago due to rising sea levels. However, the new evidence shows that the hunter-gatherer population used this area as a shelter from almost 50,000 years ago and as a residential area from 10,000 years ago. Now, the lead archaeologist, Peter Veth, said, This pushes back the age of occupation from the previous and more conservative limit of 47,000 years ago. Even older dates are entirely plausible. Due to the fact that the island also contained the longest record of dietary fauna in Australia, Veth added that Barrow Island provided rich records of ancient artifacts, gathering and hunting of marine and arid animals, and environmental signatures which show the use of a now-drowned coastal desert landscape. Now, there was material culture on the island itself, but the archaeologists also discovered rock shelters, deep chambers, as well as caves that contained well-preserved remains, Beth noting that this coastal occupation did not stop even after the sea rose. Our current research at Barrow Island has provided the earliest evidence of coastal living in Australia. Remarkably, the early colonists of the now-submerged northwest shelf did not turn their back on the sea or remain coastally tethered, but rapidly adapted to the new marsupial animals and arid zone plants of the extensive maritime deserts of northwest Australia. The study has been published in the Quaternary Science Review, and the research was assisted by the University of Queensland, the University of Adelaide, the University of Waikato, and the Oxford University. Four international laboratories also helped date the finds, which were supported by the, and I'm really, really sorry to any Aborigines listeners we have here, the Burabalaji Talanishi Aboriginal Corporation and the Kuruma Masudunira Aboriginal Corporation. Uh, I probably mispronounced those names. If you know how to pronounce them better, uh, feel free to send me an email on uh, philip at stonepages.com. Thank you. And now, ladies and gentlemen, having covered that story in Australia, let's move a little bit north towards Taiwan and Japan. Here, researchers hope to use a bamboo raft to explore a 30,000-year-old sea route between Taiwan and Okinawa. Now, the raft in question is a traditional bamboo raft which was launched in Taimali, which lies in the Taiting County of Taiwan, as part of a Taiwanese and Japanese project looking to explore a sea route between Taiwan and Okinawa, which may have been traveled some 30,000 years ago. Now, to ensure the success of this mission, uh, Taiwanese and Japanese rowers have been using paddles made of Yonaguni, which is an Okinawa prefecture, and they're testing the Amos-style raft in the water off Taiwan's east coast. Now, the hope is that the combination of this style of raft, as well as the oars, uh, will help them cross the Kurosier Current and the 33 kilometers uh, to Green Island in June, as well as uh, going to Yonaguni, which is 110 kilometers east of Taiwan. Now, the Amos-style raft is very special because the Amos are the largest of 16 recognized indigenous people of Taiwan, which were primarily fishermen and traditionally matrilineal, with a relatively large village of between 500 to 1,000 inhabitants. 
Now, Li Yufen, who is the director of the Taiwanese Museum, said Taiwan has been a hub for migration in East Asia since ancient times, and the voyage will help scholars revisit how humans could have moved around. According to Japanese archaeologists, the early inhabitants of Japan tens of thousand years ago most likely traveled from eastern Siberia to Hokkaido, and from the Korean Peninsula to Kyushu and Honshu, as well as from Taiwan to Ryukyu Islands. Now, stone tools have been found in Taichung's Changbin Township, which indicate a human presence about 50,000 to 5,000 years ago. That's a very large, wide period in the late Paleolithic. Now, Lin believes that since no human remains were found in Changbin, it is difficult to determine if the inhabitants made any sea voyages. Now, Li Yufen, who is the director of the Taiwanese Museum, said Taiwan has been a hub for migration in East Asia since ancient times. And the voyage will help scholars revisit how humans could have moved around. According to Japanese archaeologists, the early inhabitants of Japan tens of thousands of years ago most likely traveled from eastern Siberia to Hokkaido, from the Korean Peninsula to Kyushu and Honshu, as well as from Taiwan to the Ryukyu Islands. Now, in the Changbin Township of Taichung, stone tools have been found indicating a human presence there about fifty thousand to five thousand years ago in the late Paleolithic. According to one of the other researchers, Lin, who says that since no human remains were found in Changbin, it is difficult to determine if the inhabitants made any sea voyages. And now, ladies and gentlemen, time for some breaking news from Israel regarding Neanderthals. Now, as some of you may know, Neanderthals have previously only been known from cave sites. However, the recent discovery from about sixty thousand years ago of Neanderthal remains and material culture. At an open-air site at Ein Kashish on the banks of the Kishon River in northern Israel, counters that assumption, and specifically the assumption that Neanderthals were mostly cave dwellers on the verge of extinctions when Homo sapiens arrived 55,000 years ago, and it is the first of such a discovery in the Levant. Now, humans are known to have reached the Levant between 120,000 and 90,000 years ago. However, that group evidently died out. Neanderthals then came into the Levant between eighty thousand and fifty-five thousand years ago. Now, the discovery specifically is of two individuals, and it is the first、uh, in the Levant to be found in an open-air context and proven to be Neanderthal. However, there is a slight problem of one individual. There is only a single back tooth being found with associated flint tools and animal bones, and the second was a teenager or a young man, about a hundred and sixty-four centimeters tall. Who had injuries that would have caused him to limp? Five of his lower limb bones were found with multiple artifacts, including flint tools, animal bones, a roe deer antler, a seashell, and some unusual finds from this period, such as ochre. Now the remains have been dated to the late Middle Paleolithic period, which lies between seventy thousand and sixty thousand years ago, which is roughly when modern man is believed to have passed through this area while they were moving out of Africa. Genetic evidence shows that modern humans crossbred with Neanderthals after leaving Africa, and many believe this happened in the area of the Levant. Dr. Amri Basilai of the Israeli Antiquities Authorities, or IAA for short, says one hypothesis among some anthropologists had been that when modern man arrived, Neanderthals were already weakened and would have died out anyway, but they were not at that point in danger of extinction. They ruled the area. If they were already growing scarce, the remains from the time wouldn't have been found at so many sites in Israel. Now, the Levant is the only known region where the two populations existed during the Middle Paleolithic. 
Now, one explanation as to the Neanderthals disappearing is the increasing dry climate of the period, and the finds from Ein Kashis suggest that the Neanderthals repeatedly returned to the open-air sites during this time. And now for some slightly sad archaeological news, uh, namely that the Clava Cairns site in Scotland have been vandalized. One of Scotland's ancient burial sites has recently been vandalized, sadly. The stones have been dislodged and graffiti written on a rock at the 4,000-year-old Clava Cairns site near Culloden in the Highlands. Now, these cairns have been the inspiration for works of fiction, such as Diana Gabaldon's Outlander Stories, and the ancient cemetery was used as a sacred place for 1,000 years. Now, the local group Inverness Outlanders highlighted the uh, damage to the site, and a spokesperson for Historic Environment Scotland, which manages the site, said, We are aware of the recent vandalism to the Clava Cairns, and remedial work is scheduled to remove it. Thankfully, incidents such as this are rare. However, we'd ask that members of the public refrain from graffiti at our sites and remind them that it is a criminal offense to cause reckless or deliberate damage to a scheduled monument. Sadly, this isn't the first time it has been vandalized. 17 years ago, a Belgian tourist took a stone from one of the cairns as a souvenir before returning it after complaining it had cursed his family. Serves you right, I'm sorry. Um, surprise staff at the Inverness Tourist Center received a parcel containing the stone and a letter which urged them to return it to its rightful place at the Clava Cairns. The man is quoted saying that since taking the stone, his daughter had broken her leg, his wife had become very ill, and he had lost his job and broken his arm. A tourist official returned the cursed stone to Clava Cairns. And now for our next story, we have a study showing how changes in prehistoric tool production might be linked to musical ties. Recently, the University of East Anglia has carried out a study relating to stone tool production and found that the evolution of this production activates the same receptors in the brain as playing the piano would. Now, the study was done with the help of 31 participants who were tasked to produce both Aldewan and Atulian tools, with the former being the more simple than the latter. Now, the participants were then tasked with reconstructing the tools from the different traditions using videos. However, while all 31 participants learned through the videos, only 15 learned with the uh, audio communication as well. Now, the researchers found that while the production of the Aldewan tools required only the coordination of the visual attention and the motor control network, the production of the Acheulean tools required much more attention. This actually required both the uh, visual attention, the motor control networks, as well as the auditory information, much as one would need while learning the piano. The lead author of the study, Dr. Shelby Putt from the Stone Age Institute, said, This work offers novel insights into the prehistoric cognition using a cutting-edge neuroimaging technique that allows people to engage in complex actions while we are measuring localized brain activity. In regards to the Acheulean tools, the brain was not just activated in the centers required for playing piano, it was also activated in the specialized language centers in the modern humans. Now, the assumption is that such language was not available 1.75 million years ago, so it has been suggested that the Acheulean tool production did not rely on the evolution of language centers in humans. Co-author Professor John Spencer from the University of East Anglia said, Our findings do not neatly overlap with prior claims that language and stone tool production co-evolved. There is more support for the idea that working memory and auditory visual integration networks laid the foundation for advances in stone tool making. 
Now, our next story is slightly medieval in nature, but it is still prehistoric as a prehistoric sacred site was uncovered at Shrewsbury's Church. Now, for those of you like myself who don't know, uh, Shrewsbury Church lies in Shropshire, England, which I'm sure helps some of you. And recently, they had an archaeological dig there, revealing the earliest known sacred site that is still used in Britain today, dating back to 4,050 years ago. This was dated through the use of carbon dating of a wooden post that was extracted from the dig at the Church of the Holy Fathers on Outley Road in Sutton. And this was done in uh, February. Now, this has shown that it was first placed in the ground in 2033 BCE. Now, if you go to Shrewsbury's church today, apparently it is much, much smaller than it used to be. Uh, the archaeological digs show that the late 12th and early 13th century 10-meter-long uh, church was originally three times its current size and that it was built directly over the remains of an earlier Anglo-Saxon church, as well as a Neolithic early Bronze Age structure. Now, the finds here correspond with earlier archaeological excavations by Philip Barker and Ernie Jenks in the 1960s. Now, Barker and Jenks discovered not only prehistoric burial mounds, but also cremations, slot for standing stones, and two rows of Neolithic post holes, as well as a ditch known as a cursus. This was interpreted as a processional way, or, you know, for sacred sites, and it was aligned east to west, extending towards the current church buildings. Now, Janie Green of the Baskerville Archaeological Services says the current church appears to have been incorporated and deliberately built over late Neolithic early Bronze Age remains. The 15-inch section of post we found was sticking up into the medieval foundations. It is an incredibly complex site, and it appears to have been used and reused for religious purposes for over 4,000 years. It is well known that Christians like to build churches over pagan sites. She also adds, more work needs to be done, but early interpretations indicate that it is the earliest known sacred site in Britain that is still in use today. The only other site of a Christian church that is known to date back to the late Neolithic period is at Cranbourne Chase in Dorset, but it is a disused Norman church. This is a living monument. People are still worshipping here, uh, Green notes referring to the Shrewsbury Church. The earliest sacred development on the site was probably a stone circle with a cursus. Now, to please the medieval side of me, uh, there have been other significant finds, namely a carved Saxon stone, the remains of what is thought to be an Anglo-Saxon apse, as well as a prehistoric flint and a Neolithic counting disc. Some animal burials were also found in the dig, although these are still to be dated. And now for some classic archaeology, very, very classic archaeology, in fact, namely playing uh, hide-and-seek with uh, old monuments that seemingly disappear all the time, this time from Stirling. As recently, Stirling's Lost Iron Age roundhouse may have been rediscovered. Now, archaeologists believe they have found part of the remains of an Iron Age roundhouse known as a brock in Stirling that was first discovered and described by local archaeologist Christian McLagan in the 1870s. However, Attitude towards women at the time meant that uh, it was not published until the academic paper was transcribed by a man. Now, much to everyone's annoyance, Malagan's discovery in the western Liverlands was lost under a landscape garden. But, on one afternoon on the last day of last summer's excavation, of course, because that's when you get all the good finds, stones were found that suggested archaeologists were digging in the right place. Now, as of two weeks ago, further work has been done and revealed that they do believe it is part of the interior wall of the Brock. 
Now, McLagan's discovery is important because the Brock is the only known example, uh, to date anyways, of an Iron Age roundhouse that has been found in an urban setting. These stone-built towers are more commonly found in rural and remote parts of the north of Scotland, including Caithness, Glenek, and on the West Highland coast, and Orkney. Now it is expected that a crowdfunding campaign will be launched to help fund a proper excavation of the site and hopefully reveal more information about the roundhouse itself and give MacLagan the credit she deserves. And with that last story, we have reached the end of today's Stone Pages Archeo News podcast. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast and are on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a bit of a review so we can figure out how we're doing as well as spread the word of the podcast. If you have a certain knack for pronouncing Aboriginal words, like I mentioned in one of these stories, feel free to send me an email at philip at stonepages.com. I would really love some help with the Aboriginal pronunciation. Also, if you can't get enough of the prehistoric news from today's podcast, you can always go to news.stonepages.com to see any stories that we may have missed, as well as the sources for all of today's stories. But without further ado, I must sadly say goodbye for this time, and I will hope I see you next podcast. Goodbye.